Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good the evening. Wrong this is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for a bonus episode of Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, we're joined by Caitlin Rother, a New York Times bestselling author or co-author of 14 books, including Dead Reckoning, Hunting Charles Manson, Secrets, Lies, and Shoelaces, Naked Addiction, Then No One Can Have Her, I'll Take Care of You, and Poison Love. Caitlin is joining us to talk about her new book, Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion case, we'll talk to Caitlin about the mortal injury sustained by Max Shacknai, the strange death of Rebecca Zahau, and the controversy surrounding both that have persisted since July 2011. And good evening, Michael and Caitlin. Hi. Good evening, Lisa. Hi, Caitlin. So here we are. Hi. Can you hear yes. me? Yes. All right, good. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. I may have a little bit. I'm sorry. So, um, the book is was released on uh, April 27th. Right. So far, it is excellent, as all your books have been. I mean, I've told you I've read Dead Reckoning, and I'll take care of you at least twice each. Nice. And another Thank one you. I forgot about was Poison <laughs> Love. Caitlin, oh, uh, yeah. Kristen Roth. Um, Roth, Rotham, yeah. Rotham, yeah. I want to say Rother. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was funny. So. I was giving a talk one time, and I was giving um, her bio, and I, I was so nervous because I was just starting out. I started mixing us up too. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> <was, that> <laughs> it was confusing, uh, and I would love to talk to you about those three books at some other point in the future <laughs> because they are among my favorite true crime books. Oh, good. Thanks. So, and Death on Ocean Boulevard is, is working out to be uh, the same. You've got right, a really cool. great style. 
a really great way of conveying information and holding it, the interest. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I've worked really hard and long to to do that, so I'm glad to hear you say that. And it it shows. Oh, so, all right. Well, let's start off with um, just kind of to let listeners know a little bit more about you before mm-hmm. we go into the book. Okay. What did you want to know? Oh, I was going to let you me. do that yourself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you said, I have written or co-authored 14 books, but basically I I started writing stories when I was a little girl and kept doing it in college and thought I should maybe go into the business world and I tried advertising and I just said, eh, nah. I tried PR and I said, eh, nah. So I ended up um, going to journalism school, and uh, I did do some journalism in college and at the college paper at Berkeley, UC Berkeley. Um, and I really liked it, and I really enjoyed it. But, you know, it's, it, it, in those days, which is not today, because you've got a lot of young, very young, inexperienced people doing journalism these days, because all the people like me who did journalism for years and years, have all either been fired, laid off, or t- took buyouts. <laughs> so that is mm-hmm. the state of journalism today, which is a whole other conversation. But anyway, when I started out, it was really hard to get into journalism. So you had to go to some small town in the middle of nowhere and earn no money and just be lonely. And I just wasn't willing to do that initially until I went into PR and I said, okay, um, I guess I don't want to do that. I am willing to go to a small town in the middle of nowhere. And I ended up in um, North Adams. Massachusetts where it was you know snowing when I got there and I grew up in San Diego so that was kind of fun and so anyway I worked my way back to California and I worked at the LA Times and the LA Daily News and I came back to my hometown San Diego I was born in Canada but I consider San Diego my hometown because that's where I grew up Mm -hmm. and I worked at the San Diego Union Tribune and I learned how to write what we call narrative so I write narrative nonfiction, and what that means is um, nonfiction, so it's all true, but it reads like a novel. And that takes a long time to learn. And it also takes a ridiculous amount of reporting and research to make it authoritative so that you can actually write it that way. So you can't just do he said, she said, like you do in the newspaper. You've got to go really mm-hmm. deep and you have to know, you have to really know your material. And then you use characters, just like you do in, in you use fiction writing techniques to tell a true story. And I don't make anything up. I don't assume anything. I don't exaggerate anything. And I don't, um, you know, make any assumptions. I basically take the evidence. Excuse me, I do my own investigation. I use the investigation of law enforcement. I go to the trials when I can. If I can't go to the trials, I will find the um, transcripts if I can. And I'll go to the Court of Appeals and sit there and take notes on transcripts mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, actually, they have YouTube now. So they actually have like Law and Crime, for example, a book that I'm working on. Um, I can actually watch the court proceedings without having gone, sitting through the whole thing. So, Correct. I mean, I do a lot of research. Um, it's a tremendously difficult job to write true crime, and it doesn't really pay for the time that you do it. So you have to really love it. But I really enjoy you know, finding the real story, the backstory, the story that doesn't necessarily come out in court because, you mm-hmm. know, lawyers are trying to win a case. They aren't necessarily, well, and they're definitely not telling the whole truth. 
they're telling their side of the story and their two sides to every court trial. There's the defense and the prosecution, and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that never gets into the courtroom. So when I approach a story, um, and in this case, it was like 20 times harder to do than any other case, which we can talk about because the research was very difficult. This was not a criminal case. This was a civil court case. So we should talk about that because that's really important. Um, But anyway, um, I still use all the same techniques in terms of research, but I have to go further and I have to go deeper and I have to do um, a lot of interviews and and I have to basically ask questions that law enforcement didn't even ask because they, you know, they determined that this was a suicide um, before. So there was no criminal case. So it's, it's a totally different story than I've ever done before, and what's also different about it is that I have myself in it, which my editor wanted. She, that's why she bought the book. I've worked with Kensington before, um, and this editor knows me. This is my seventh book with Kensington. Um, she wanted me to put my story in there because it's directly relevant. So basically, um, you know, there's more – it's complicated and interwoven, so I'll let you ask your questions because that's otherwise we're going to get starting into the case. So, <laughs> and <laughs> I well, I, I am curious. <laughs> yeah, this book where it involved a civil case and it involved something that didn't end up in criminal court. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you compared with, say, Dead Reckoning or Poison Love or even? Um, well, we can't count Nanette Packard because the case took so long to <laughs> well, no, you can't, resolve actually, as far are, as the arrest. <laughs> those are three totally different cases even from each other, but let's, mm-hmm. let's just try to go through them real quick. So, or how long it took poison, for you to write. Right. No, I understand. Your, so, so basically with Poison Love, I was covering that when I was still a newspaper reporter. So I did that when I was still working, um, you know, at the paper. And I covered it from arrest to sentencing. I wrote 50 stories. I wrote a story for Cosmopolitan Magazine. And then I said, hey, I want to write a book about this. They said, okay, as soon as you're done covering the case, then you can start working on your book because it's an ethical thing with newspapers. You can't do both. So at least not at my newspaper. So it took me, I took six months off, and I basically had already done a lot of research and sat through the trial while I was at the newspaper. So that book didn't actually take me that long. Dead Reckoning, I left the paper, and I was full-time working as an author. That was three trials. So that took a long time, and it was a death penalty case. And, uh, you know, death penalty cases take a long time to get to fruition in order, you know, and then there's time between each case. So that one took me about five Mm -hmm. years. And then I've continued to update it. So I've updated it a couple times. That case I've covered longer than any case in my career, including anything I ever wrote about at the newspaper. So that's a that's a unique one on its own. And then I'll take care of you with two cases. And again, um, that one I had to go up to Orange County and back just like I did with Dead Reckoning. It was the same police department. It was the same prosecutor. Excuse me. And then from the time of the murder until the time of the arrest, that was, I think, 15 years. Then it took another right. several years to get to trial. And I have to go, I mean, the way I like to do it, I don't always get to do it, is I like to go to the whole trial. So it took me another, I don't know, two, three years on that one. This case, 
Death on Ocean Boulevard, the Rebecca Zahau case. She was um, found dead in on July 13, 2011. Um, but this is the interesting thing about this case. I had a reporter say to me, but you said you couldn't write a book on this because there wasn't any kind of crime. I said, well, okay. Yeah, I said that at the time because they're, you know, for liability reasons. When you're an author, you're not working for the newspaper. Things are different. You have to, you have to approach things in a completely different way. And publishers are very risk averse. They don't mm-hmm. want, and they don't want you to write a book about a case that doesn't have some kind of court right? I mean, there was no arrest. There was no criminal arrest of anyone. And um, there, you know, they didn't even really have suspects in this case. And, you know, boom, they declared it a suicide, that Rebecca Zahau um, committed suicide even though she was found, according to her boyfriend's brother, who was the only one on the property, Adam Shacknai, was the brother, and Jonah Shacknai was her wealthy boyfriend mm-hmm. who owned the, the mansion where she was found. He, uh, Adam said he found her hanging naked, bound, and gagged from an external uh, second-floor balcony in the rear courtyard of the Spreckles Mansion in Coronado. Um, but they never really considered him a suspect. They interviewed him. They gave him a polygraph test, and even though it was later found to be inconclusive, the examiner said, oh, I think he's telling the truth. And they pretty much just dropped him as, you know, he was a person of interest, but basically he was considered to be innocent and that Jonah was at the hospital and Jonah's ex-wife, who was another person who people were thinking had motive to harm Rebecca because they didn't get along, didn't like each other. They'd had some issues. Um, they were both supposedly, they told the, the authorities, they were both at the hospital with their son, Max, who had mm-hmm. taken a tragic fall two days before Rebecca was found dead. And Rebecca was the only adult at the mansion at the time that, that Max fell. And so the authorities said, well, she must have felt guilty that she was somehow responsible or should have done something or who knows what really happened. We don't really know what happened, but we think she felt guilty and she killed herself. So that's what the sheriff's department said. So my, my issue in not being able to approach this case the way I normally do, I, I was following it very closely, but I couldn't really do anything because it was not even, there was no arrest. There was no criminal case. So mm-hmm. I couldn't really do anything until the Zahau family, which said, oh, no, she never would have committed suicide. She definitely was murdered. So who murdered her? And why didn't the sheriff's department contact us? And why are the sheriff's department, you know, treating her this way and us this way? And this is wrong. And she was murdered. And so that's pretty much continues to be their position even today. And they've gone even further than that, which we can talk about. But basically, and they sued they sued for wrongful death, and they, they named, initially named, Dina Shacknai, Max's mother, Jonah's ex-wife, mm-hmm. Dina's sister, who admitted to going to the mansion uh, the night before to ask about, you know, Max and details of what happened to Max. How did he fall? Where was Rebecca? What did she see? Where did she find him? 
And then Alex right. was the only person on the property and was the one who made the 911 call. So I couldn't do anything until it got into court. So, you know, your whole introduction about we tell things through the court, I have to wait until things really get to court, especially in a case like this, because I can't just go around accusing people because, you know, everybody in Coronado and, you know, was saying, well, this, and, and in San Diego, and in fact, across the nation, if you read WebSleuths, that, that website, there were all kinds of theories going on about who murdered mm-hmm. Rebecca. So there were a lot of people who thought, still do to this day, think that she was murdered. But I can't go around just accusing people. That's not what I right. do. <laughs> I'm an objective right. journalist, and I have to have some kind of, you know, court ruling or some kind of evidence that I can present that my publisher would think is safe enough to publish. So it's kind of a complicated, long story, but that's in a nutshell. I think Correct. nutshell, but a nutshell. <laughs> that, that is what we refer to as the court of public opinion. So the, the people, and I think I read somewhere that someone yeah. in Home Depot actually approached oh, you, know, you with a absolutely. theory. It, it, it happens all the time. The minute, oh, that case, oh, the sheriff was definitely bribed. You need to prove that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been given that standard to meet. <laughs> you know, you need to go out right. and prove that. I'm like, oh, okay, that'll be simple, you know. Right. When I was a reporter, I mean, you get these calls or letters all the time or people have some kind of conspiracy theory, and most of the time – you know, unless they have some kind of documentation or some kind of evidence, you can't even do anything with it. So what's different about how where we are today is a lot of people believe in conspiracy theories. I mean, look at the mm-hmm. QAnon, look at, look at where we were with this last administration and the insurrection and all this stuff. People are believing that we didn't, that, that Trump was elected when Biden got more votes. And nobody, even in his own administration, would support that. And we had this whole thing with, you know, people getting killed. And people are still believing that. So this is where we are today. There are a lot of people who just don't trust law enforcement. They don't trust science. They don't trust facts. And they want to believe something because they can't believe whatever else it is. You know, so in this case, they can't believe that Rebecca committed suicide. Now, I'm not taking a position in this book, and I'm not taking a position in any interview. If anyone asks me what I think, mm-hmm. I'm basically just going to say, look, I've presented it. It's all in my book. All the evidence is there with my investigation, the sheriff's investigation, and it's up to the reader to decide. But, um, you know, there, there are a lot of unanswered questions in this case. And that is why we still have a story. And we still have allegations of corruption against the sheriff. The Zahau family mm-hmm. has filed yet another lawsuit um, as of last year. And then we just had a court hearing uh, last week, actually. So that is still moving forward. It is still pending. And they are accusing the sheriff of all kinds of corruption and doing things improperly. Mm-hmm. And it's not in my book because... I was not given access to the letter that they filed with the police mm-hmm. department. I could not get it from the Zahaus or their attorney, and I could not get it from the sheriff's department, and that's a whole other right. story. I have it in my hands, but it's pretty libelous and defamatory, and I have to be careful what I say because Correct. I can't 
prove this stuff. It's not my job to prove it. It's their job to prove it. So they're in court. They're mm-hmm. going to be back in October, and the sheriff's going to be able to come back and say, they basically want the sheriff to release more records because they feel like the sheriff has some kind of discussion, notes, communications among the detectives where some of the detectives maybe thought it was a murder, but they weren't allowed to move forward with that, or why didn't they get Adam Shacknight's phone records or take his phone? You know, there's all kinds of questions, which I had to right. actually when I looked at the case, but I'm not making these accusations. I'm just looking at the evidence. Right. And that's, um, that's something. Another thing, can you give us a little background on uh, Rebecca, Jonah, Max, and Adam? Um, especially they seem to be, you know, kind of the main players. Uh, I forgot Dina and, and Nina right. when I was making my outline. But just kind of a quick background of who they are. And, of course, the book will give readers much more information about them. Right. So Rebecca and Jonah, uh, Jonah had been married twice before. He was married uh, first to a woman named Kim. They had two, two kids who were teenagers when Rebecca and Jonah were together. Um, and I changed their names in the book because they were minors at the time. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not using names for that. But um, so two teenagers and then with his second wife, Dina Shacknai, um, they had this son, Max, who was six years old, and Rebecca was taking care of him. So they had this custody schedule where kids from both of his previous marriages would come and stay at the same time for a couple weeks, I think, and then trade off. So they would each go back to their respective mothers. So Rebecca was mm-hmm. helping Jonah take care of his kids. And they came to Coronado in the summer because, Normally, um, the rest of the year, they lived in um, Paradise Valley in um, Arizona near the Scottsdale, Phoenix area, and it was too hot in the summer. So a lot of people in that area come to San Diego or Coronado and have second homes there for the summer, So and mm-hmm. Dina came too. So she had a house around the corner, Jonah's best friend. Howard had a house that I guess Jonah bought for him, which I didn't know um, when I wrote the book. I found that out recently. And so it was just like a big party, you know, in Coronado and their Hotel Dell is there. So they would go to the beach there. They would go to the club. They'd have a gym, you know. And Jonah was going back and forth, I think, to Arizona where he had founded and was running a very successful pharmaceutical company which uh, made some products that, you know, one of them was a competitor with Botox and did a bunch of other, you know, dermatological, uh, cosmetic kind of skin products. Mm -hmm. So that he was very wealthy, very successful, very smart, um, very accomplished. And he met Rebecca in um, Scottsdale at an eye clinic where she was working. So she was an ophthalmic technician, and she helped with the surgery, with the, you know, the LASIK surgery and that kind of thing. So anyway, they were together for a couple of years, and they were out for the summer, and um, Dina was living in her house for the summer around the corner, about five minutes away. Um, she and Jonah had had a very volatile relationship. There were some domestic violence reports filed by each of them against each other when they were still married and going through a divorce. 
but they were fully divorced and there were still some issues though. Dina did not like Rebecca. Dina did not like, she, she didn't like, you have to read the book for all the details, but there just, there was a lot of tension there and a lot of conflict and Dina didn't trust Rebecca um, taking care of her son essentially. So when something happened to her son and ended up, you know, he ended up in the ICU with this terrible um, brain bleeding and what have you, mm-hmm. um, you know, Dina was obviously, with good reason, very upset and wanted to know what happened. And her sister, Nina, flew right, you know, down from the from Northern California. And then Adam Shackney, who is Jonah's younger brother, they grew up together up in New York, um, he flew out as well. And he and Jonah were not very close. I think Dina and Nina were closer. So we had all this, all these people kind of joined, in, came together in San Diego because mm-hmm. of this thing that happened with Max two days before Rebecca was found dead. Correct. So and Adam, that kind of gives you the lay of the land. Right. And Adam was a river pilot in Memphis. A tugboat, tugboat pilot. Right? Tugboat pilot. Okay. Up and down the Mississippi River. I'm from, yeah. I'm from New Orleans. My dad was a marine surveyor. Oh, okay. Um, so I've worked with a lot of the river pilots. Now, I don't think Memphis has the pilot system the way we have. I think when the boat comes flew... in. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, he. when the boat comes in the river, a pilot brings it up the river, and he's the only one that touches the helm while it's on the Mississippi River. Huh. Um, yeah, but I, I think know. that's only like between New Orleans and Baton, or the <laughs> mouth of the river in Baton Rouge. I My think in Memphis it's just regular, you know, captain well, was, certificates, whatever, Coast Guard. He was flying in and out to different places, so I don't know that he actually got on any boat in Memphis. So I don't know if that changed. Anything, okay. But, yeah, like he he would get on a plane, I know, to go get on it someplace else, wherever it was, to pick it up. Okay. But. That was the route, um, and I and I know he was on a crew, I think of three guys at a time, and then the other three were asleep or whatever. And this, so they would go six hours mm-hmm. on, six hours off, six hours on, six hours off. And I don't know anything yeah. about who touched the helm or whatever, but he was the pilot <laughs> captain. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get into that, but yeah. Well, that's I just that's what I found interesting when yeah you know when I started reading. And I mm-hmm. saw that, and it's like, oh, wait, I know about that, because I lived in Memphis as well. Uh-huh. I wonder if I ever ran into him <laughs> well, at any like time when music, I lived in you Memphis. you might have, because he's a very big live music fan. Okay. <laughs> All right. So anyway, yeah, that's, you know, a weird connection that I, I find. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, Max's accident, uh, uh-huh. nobody... There was no witness present. Can say that much. And people have tried to figure it out. And right, right. So okay, so there's a nine one one call, and I've had other people tell me that there are things on the nine one one call that they've heard, and you know, I've only been able to play whatever pieces of the nine one one call that I had access to. I didn't hear the things that they're saying are on there. But it, it it definitely was kind of a weird call. So 
I heard it for the first time and only time really in court. And then somebody later sent me pieces of it and they're like, do you hear this? And I'm like, no. And so if there were mm-hmm. other pieces of the call that they had that they didn't send me, I didn't hear that. But somebody said they heard Rebecca say something like, don't let them in or something. So anyway, her, her sister, who I've also changed her name because she was also a minor. Um, I call her um, Ariel in the book. Um, she, um, so okay, so Ariel and Max and Rebecca and Jonah were having pancakes for breakfast that morning at the Coronado Freckles Mansion um, because Ariel had just come flown in to visit from Missouri where she was with the rest, uh, living with um, Rebecca's family, who's her older sister was back there with her husband and kids and, and Rebecca's um, parents lived back there as well. And so originally, Rebecca's family, um, she was born in um, Burma, which is now Myanmar, which has got that terrible, whole, crazy, yeah. I don't know what you call that, civil war. I mean, I don't know what you call that, but just bad. They're shooting people and burning people in the streets. So it's a bad, I don't know what was going on at the time, but I know that they left because they were political refugees, and it was really bad when she was growing up as well. So uh, she yeah. was a political refugee, and they were really poor, and they had to go and flee her whole family. And they um, they went to um, – um, I'm forgetting now. Uh, I hate this. Anyway, they ended up in Germany. They, Germany she, was she kind one of, place. Yeah, there was a place in between. I remember. Them. I can't remember the, the other place that they um, went to in the meantime. Like but anyway. Well. Yeah, so anyway, she ended up in Germany, then she ended up in Austria going to Bible college, and then she came out, um, she ended up getting engaged to a guy, an American that she met in Bible college, came out to America, got married to him. The marriage was very volatile, up and down, and so when she met Jonah, she was still married, but separated, and um, I forgot where I was going with this now. Oh, the 911 call. So Ariel was um, in the house just visiting for a month. And um, Rebecca says she was in a bathroom. Um, So Jonah had gone to the gym. Max had supposedly gone upstairs to clean his room. Ariel went upstairs to take a shower. And Rebecca was downstairs in in the bathroom. They were going to go to the zoo later and to the beach. So um, she was in the bathroom, she heard the dog barking and she heard a crash. And so she came out and she said she found Max on the floor in the foyer area, which is at the bottom of a stair stairway that kind of goes um, dog legs up and up to the next level mm-hmm. and up to the, you know. So um, there's a, and then there's a chandelier lying next to him that was broken, a glass chandelier. So there were pieces of glass everywhere. Dog was barking with her dog. And there was a soccer ball. And there was a little razor scooter. So this is what she comes out to see. And she cries out to her sister, you know, come out, come out, you know, and she told her to call 911. So that's the 911 call. And, you know, mm-hmm. so Ariel grew up in Germany. And so I think you know, English is her second language. And so Rebecca was, I don't know if they had it on speakerphone, but she was calling out directions to her to tell the 911 operator because she, I think she was getting her pronouns wrong. So she was saying she when yeah. she meant he or, or the 
dispatcher wasn't understanding. I don't know what exactly happened, but there was a lot of commotion. And Rebecca, who told Jonah that she had been giving CPR to Max, was actually calling out directions to Ariel on the phone call quite a bit. So I'm not sure how much she was able to do CPR. But that was this kind of chaotic scene. And then at some point, Ariel just stopped answering questions for the dispatcher. And I was sitting there in court going, that sounds like a lot of commotion. It almost sounds like, was someone else there? I mean, I don't know. That was a question that went through my head. So but that that was the scene. It, it just seemed like because she wasn't answering and I think, it was confusion. And, yeah, but I think in that, in that situation, mm-hmm. it's understandable. Oh, yeah. It I is, a, it is a, yeah. an incredibly chaotic situation. And, right. um, the, you know, the, the dispatcher is an understanding and right. Rebecca is talking to her and the dispatcher is talking. For somebody like like Alexis who or Ariel who is very young, what, 13 right. she's or 13 12? She's 13 years old. Yeah, and she, I'm sure she's never talked to a 911 op- operator before. And she, you know, she, it, 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 anyway, so the point is, it was a chaotic yeah. thing, and um, so that was that was the scene. And so right. there were a lot of questions after that. So Dina and her sister Nina and Jonah and Howard and Adam, everyone was asking Rebecca, what happened? What happened? She's like, I don't know. What happened? Right. I came out, and I found him on the floor. She says, I don't even remember if I turned mm-hmm. him over to give him CPR or if he mm-hmm. was landed on his back. I don't even, she didn't even say, she said she didn't even remember that. So Dina and Nina were immediately suspicious about that. And mm-hmm. She said, oh, well, she must have been more involved. And then later, you know, when she was found dead, they're like, oh, she must have committed suicide because she must have been more responsible than she let on. And so that's right. very telling, right? So she must have done something wrong. And so that turned out to be a huge fiasco um, between Dina and Jonah, who were all, who already had been through all kinds of craziness in their relationship. But Dina persisted. She got CPS involved at the hospital. She talked to the doctor. The doctor said, you know, his injuries don't match the story of how he supposedly got the injury. So there was a lot of confusion mm-hmm. going on about what happened. Right. Now. And so the sheriff's department, deemed it a tragic accident. Jonah hired um, uh, an investigative law firm. They said they had no reason to doubt the police's investigation. Um, but does the Howe family basically, I mean, they, they aren't really talking about what happened to Max. They're basically just saying Rebecca was murdered. She wasn't feeling right. guilty about Max. She never said anything to anyone that she felt bad like or re- not not that she didn't feel bad, but that mm-hmm. she did felt responsible or guilty but it's, or depressed it's, or suicidal, and that's just not in her nature. That's not the person we know. But it seems like in the two days between Max's accident and her death, mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. didn't really have a lot of time. Jonah wasn't calling her. Right. She was picking people up and dropping them off and not having right. any. You know, nobody said, hey, Rebecca, how are you? Let's go get right. some coffee. Let's go get something to eat. So exactly. how can exactly. we really know what was, right. what her state of mind was? Right. And that's pretty much kind of, you know, 
the reason I thought it was so important to write this book is because um, I, I was intrigued initially just because these circumstances. I mean, what woman would tie herself up, gag herself, put her, her hands, and um, by the way, were tied behind her back, and her feet were, her ankles were bound together. So this is like, it looked like some kind of, you know, you know, Adam Shacknight says, oh, this is, you know, bondage. This is some kind of sexual, mm-hmm. erotic kind of bondage. And Jonah says, I asked him about this, and he says, well, we never did that. <laughs> she never did that with me. It's like, well, how would she know how to do this, or why would she even think to do this? Because it's pretty intricate, and it was pretty – it looked very um, – it looks violent. You know what I mean? I mean, why? Who mm-hmm. sticks a gag in their own mouth and ties their hands behind their back and is naked and hangs themselves outside? So, you know, most people, when they heard about this, they were like, including the sheriff's department, they said, well, this is clearly a suspicious death. And they started investigating it as a homicide because the circumstances were so unusual. Correct. And to this day, um, I don't care what the sheriff's department and what their people tried to say during the trial. It's just, it's incredibly rare, and there were plenty of people who testified to that. They didn't really want to admit mm-hmm. that, I don't, but, but I looked online for any kind of journal article or any kind of studies. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> this is just not the kind of thing that women generally do, you know, and not even, you know, there, there have been cases where a woman will – insert something in her vagina or whatever, which is what the Zahau's attorney claimed that she was sexually assaulted with a knife, which is getting into all the evidence with the trial and everything. But the the family is just like, no, 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 no. And there's just no way. So, so what we have is a family who absolutely is adamant that this wouldn't have happened. And then the weird circumstances. And then my husband committed suicide by hanging. So obviously when this happened, I was watching it very closely because I felt personally connected to this. Um, And I, you know, in in some fashion, you know, I mean, I didn't know these people, but I was just curious because, like, it's just so unusual. Mm -hmm. The difference is I knew my husband, you know, he had threatened to commit suicide before. And I, when the day that his body was found, I already kind of knew in my heart, in my gut, that he was either going to be found dead, because he had threatened before. So I wasn't surprised. In fact, I was expecting it. On the other hand, her family was not expecting it. In fact, they absolutely Mm -hmm. argued that it never would have happened. So it, it intrigued me, and I felt like I really wanted to get to the bottom of it. However, it was deemed a suicide, so I really couldn't for liability reasons, get into it. So I just, you know, people came to me, they brought me information because they know I'm an author. Um, so I was gathering information and I, I did what I could. Sheriff's Department wouldn't even let me come to the news conference because I no longer have a press pass. I'm not a working mm-hmm. journalist at a, at a newspaper anymore, which is ridiculous that they wouldn't let me in because they knew exactly who I am. So that I go into that in the book as well. But you know, that kind of bugged me, too. I'm like, why wouldn't they let me come to the press conference if this is such a, you know, direct, straight, arrow kind of case? It, it's clearly complicated. There's clearly something weird here. <laughs> so I was right. intrigued, and I really wanted to get to the bottom of this. So then when the, the House filed their lawsuit, 
that gave me an opening, then I said, great, things are going to start coming out in court. So long story short, I went to the trial, and there was still a lot of stuff that did not come out in court. I ended up getting the whole sheriff's investigative file, not from the sheriffs, but from other people, other sources. And they, there was a lot of the case that never, that never came out. So I wrote about that in my book because that is still the only evidence that even does the house have to go on is what forensic evidence, DNA, fingerprints, whatever mm-hmm. investigation the sheriff's department did, that's all they have to go on. And there's a lot of holes. There are people who've looked at it, you know, former homicide investigators, cold case investigators, um, it, you know, all kinds of other people who've said there's this hole, there's this hole, this doesn't make sense. Why did they interpret this this way? Why didn't they interpret it this way? Why did they collect the DNA on one swab when they should have used five? You know, I mean, there's all kinds of forensic questions, holes in the investigation that other people have raised. So basically... You know, when, the, when it came time to go to trial, the, the Howe's attorney managed to convince the jury that it was a murder, that, that Adam Shack and I was re- mm-hmm. responsible for Rebecca's death. And so that gave me then the opportunity to be able to write a book and look even deeper into it and do more investigation. But to this day, right. there still is not a criminal conviction. There is no criminal case. So it, it and- still is largely in the court of public opinion, but the Howes are trying to get it back into criminal, back to reopen the criminal case, to to do more investigation, more thorough investigation, answer some of these questions that, you know, things just don't make sense. Right. And that is the the manner of death is, has always been one of the things that make you go, hmm. Yeah, they said suicide and death by, you know, hanging. And according to Cyril Wecht, who is a famous forensic pathologist who testified for the, uh, the Howe family, he thinks uh, that she was manually strangled and then, you know, either lowered down or tossed over or whatever. You know, there's another attorney who was involved in this case earlier who thought she might have been actually um, hoisted or you know pulled up because think about Mm -hmm. it how if you're in a if you are in a suicidal frame of mind how are you going to know how exactly long to cut a piece of rope so that you're going to dangle to a certain height and not touch the ground there were um some you know imprints on the dust on the balcony which some people you know a lot of people are interpreting different ways well, she she basically doesn't even have her whole foot down to put weight on it. How she's like got, got a toe that she's going to somehow get over that railing and push herself over. It just it's like not there. right. The mechanics, the, the mechanics of it. I mean, that's the that's the thing. And interestingly, the parallel there's a parallel with Max's injury. Which what is that? Figuring out the mechanics of how he oh, right. Mm-hmm. could have fallen in the way right. that he fell they, yeah. from right right there's a there's it, what what is what is um similar is that so she's 5 foot 3 and a half and the railing you know would hit her in a certain place that just it just didn't really make sense how she would be able to you know get over that thing did she lean over did she 
because she, she clearly didn't run and <laughs> jump over. Uh-huh. I mean, the imprints on the balcony don't show that. So they were trying to figure that same thing out with Max. You know, they said he's not tall enough or heavy enough. His, um, the you know, the middle of, of his body and where the balcony was on the stairway inside where he went over, it, they were like, that didn't make sense either. Even if he was on a skateboard that was found next to him, it's, you know, he wouldn't have been able to go fast enough to get the momentum to go over. So there's still a lot of questions about this investigation of both of these deaths. Right. But there, and there are questions that we unfortunately may never be able to answer because the two people that know best are unable to, to enlighten anyone. Right. So, so I was intrigued by that. I wanted to get into that. There were a lot of unanswered questions. So I started digging into this. So I interviewed uh, Jonah, which I wasn't able to get him, um, get a hold of him until right before I was about to turn the book in. <laughs> so he agreed to talk to me and I was like, great. Um, so we talked eight times. We had very eight lengthy interviews and I had to completely rewrite portions of my book because I felt like, you know, this to be fair and also to be thorough and to tell the truth, you need to have all the information you can get. So it's not like I'm taking sides, but he did have some important information that I wasn't able to get mm-hmm. before and an important perspective. I did interview Adam um, after the trial. We sat down um, some months after the trial, and um, I talked to him for a few hours, and I also interviewed the sheriff. And I um, went through all the the sheriff's um, investigative reports, which I had access to, and all the photos. They interviewed witnesses. But basically there was just, you know, I also also found, um, this came out in the trial, they had a deposition each from her ex-husband, Neil Nalepa, and an ex-boyfriend, Michael Berger. And there was some incident which the de- the defense tried to make Rebecca look like a crazy person and a and a loose you know woman who slept around or whatever. They were basically just trying to paint her in a very mm-hmm. negative light. But um, I still thought that this was important to kind of try to find out who she was because what I was what I was able to figure out ultimately, and from what Jonah said and from what Michael Berger said. And what her family said, I mean, something wasn't adding up. So right. the more that I got into it, um, and this is toward, you know, after I had already gotten the book deal, after I would already done a lot of investigating, I started seeing some parallels between her and my husband. So that what I, what I came to believe is that she was not a happy, healthy person and a totally religious person as her family thought. According to Jonah, she never went to church. She never talked about church. Mm-hmm. In fact, she, she told him that she wasn't that way, that she was clearly torn about this. She was not a modest dresser. She was, you know, not this, not that. All the things that her family thought she was, and I'm not saying that they are lying. It just seems that Rebecca told, showed different parts of herself to different people and was a troubled person. She was a troubled person. She was actually more unhappy than I think her family knew, and it showed up in these notes that were on her phone, which the sheriff's department has Mm -hmm. really 
clung to as, as the rationale for their suicide theory, and I'm not using it for that purpose. I'm just saying it does show that she was, you know, the reason she was upset with Jonah and that he was taking sides with his kids against her. She was clearly having a lot of issues, and he said, you know, she, he didn't even know if they were going to make it through the summer the way things were going. He said he just couldn't take that much conflict, and so he loved her, but there was Dina, who was clearly, uh, you know, an issue between them, and she was causing a lot of conflict, and the teenagers with his first wife, they were causing conflict, and uh, Rebecca thought they were very disrespectful to Mm -hmm. her, so there was a lot of, you know, bad energy and dynamics in the house, and so, and she wanted a child, and Jonah was pretty firm. He didn't want to have a child, and so there was a lot going on, and so I just kind of felt like there was just some things that, you know, about Rebecca that, that didn't really come out. And I, I am not saying this like it's like anything to make her look bad in any way. I, I just feel sorry for her because no matter what really happened, and I don't know what really happened, but no matter whether it was a suicide or a murder, this is a tragedy all around. Correct. For all the families. And so I just want everyone to know that, you know, I feel bad for everyone, but I, I do feel like Rebecca wanted to show a happy face to her family and make her make them think that she was doing well and she was going to marry Jonah and everything was fine when in fact it really wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I don't know Correct. if that's enough and to make her to do that. I mean, I still want to know how did she know how to tie herself up like that? Where would she where would she get that information? I think that's pretty key. I mean, is there something we don't know that people are not wanting to admit to or that people – because I talked to her ex-boyfriend, Michael Berger. He says she was a wholesome woman. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't – she never drank. There was no drugs. She um, didn't even act impulsively until the day she disappeared and called and told me that she got kidnapped. So that was the whole thing that came out of the trial. That was like, whoa. Did that internet? Happen? Did she make that up, or you know, it, it yeah. seems like she made that up. And to this day, he but, feels like she was crying on the phone. He believed she was in trouble. She um, made him think that she was in trouble and kidnapped by some some guy. And then he found out that it was her ex-husband. She disappeared again. It turned out that she was with her ex-husband, or wasn't her ex-husband. They were still married. She told Michael that they were getting divorced, which they weren't. So there's all these mm-hmm. stories that she told different people, which turn out not to be true. So I just, right. I just think we really need to look deeper into who Rebecca was, too. And as much as I, I'm not trying to hurt the family, it's the, you know, it, we have to know this in order to figure out what happened. Correct. But there's a lot of information on the internet that she could have found very easily that... But there was nothing on her laptop that showed she was searching for anything. So that's part of what the family said. Look, how did she know this? There's no searches. There's there's no searches um, on her laptop that she was looking for ways to kill herself or tie herself up or anything like that. Okay. And that's my question. I mean, if if she did do this, why did she do this? And and why did she pick that specific way? Was that a message to somebody that she was sending? Because, 
like the message on the door. I know you wanted to talk about that. She saved yeah. him. Can can you save her? Now the the sheriff's department didn't even want to release that language. They they said there was a message mm-hmm. on the door, but we're not going to tell anybody what it was. <laughs> so finally, it leaked out. And they, to this day, won't even say what that means. We don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. Maybe you as God, right. because she was religious, she saved him, meaning Max. So, so the, the Howe family says, well, she's clearly referring to somebody in the Shackney family because Jonah was saying she saved him. And he, she was telling him she, she gave him CPR. Therefore, she saved him, mm-hmm. even though she didn't actually save him because he died of those injuries several days after she died. He was on right. life support and what have you, but he wasn't dead. So Correct. she had saved him and, in other words, got his, you know, was able to, somehow he was able, the paramedics got his heart beating again, but it was mm-hmm. too much damage and he ultimately died of that. But, the, you know, the, the house say, well, this refers to Adam or, you know, the only people who knew that she, quote-unquote, saved him were the Shacknack family. So Dina, Nina, right. Jonah, Adam. So, but, you know, she didn't really save him because he died. And maybe it meant something else. It was, you know, other people say it was very, you know, the way it was written on the door was painted with black paint mm-hmm. in a kind of violent kind of way. It was in block letters. Yeah. And she didn't write in block letters, but Adam Shacknai signs his signature in block letters. I don't. I use cursive. I don't know about you, but I handwrite my signature. Mm-hmm. I mean, most people do. So, and the, the, the house say, well, also it was written at a certain height on the door that would have been more natural for someone taller like Adam. You know, Rebecca was shorter. It wouldn't have been natural for her to write it that way. The sheriff's department says, well, we had an employee stand in front of the door, and it was just fine. So, like I said, there's so many different interpretations of the same evidence. But the bottom line right. is it was, it was a staged scene. It was either staged as the homicide or it was staged as a suicide, but it was staged because mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense otherwise. <laughs> Correct. So that's, that's my opinion. And Yeah, and trying to figure out, who or why but you right. know looking at it big question would be motive and since right. the right family suspect is adam mm-hmm. would adam have had motive what was his relationship with rebecca did he harbor any ill will toward her either for her relationship Right. With his brother, or for the or for Max's injuries, right? And that's a big question. <laughs> so. I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you, does the house think you know he was the only one there on the property that night, except for mm-hmm. her? They came back from dinner. They left Jonah and Dina at the hospital. They they uh, went to dinner and came back. She went into the house. He says he went into the guest house, and that was that. Mm-hmm. And he went to sleep. Right. He came out the next morning and found her. Um, does the house believe that he um, had some sexual motivation and was frustrated? And, you know, I'm not going to – I don't really want to weigh in on my opinion on what I think is is right and true. And and I don't want to give away some certain things in the book because that would no, be a spoiler. I, but, but, but I, I apologize. I, 
No problem. Um, I just, I think there's, you know, the thing about Adam is Adam hasn't really done himself a lot of favors with the way that he has conducted himself. He has, like when he gives interviews, he's cussing left and right, and he says, I wouldn't effing waste my time killing Rebecca Zahao. He says stuff like that, you know, and he calls her family, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all kinds of really horrible names and, um, you know, basically characterize them as grifters and, you know. So, and he's got a temper. He's he's understandably angry. He's understandably angry, but he's not doing himself any favors with the way he's conducted himself, which you'll see in the book. (laughs) But, but by but the same token, he a, his he he he's a sailor. He's a he's sailor. a sailor. That's what the sheriff. That's what the sheriff did. You know, he's not a very sympathetic guy because he's a tugboat captain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think I don't so, I, you know if he I think if he and jo- because be Jonah can out. Jonah is a businessman and Jonah can you know look at it and it's not personal, it's business. And so right. he can conduct himself. But Adam is a tugboat captain. Right. And you do what he says. He is God. And if you don't like it, he'll kick your ass up one side and down the other. <laughs> and that's how, you know, that's the mindset. I work for yeah. attorneys. Mm-hmm. And so attorneys and, and Adam is the nightmare client. <laughs> Well, the, his his attorneys told him not to say anything, and then once the trial was over, he he said, "Well, I should have he, stayed quiet." And then he just said all kinds of stuff, and they haven't said anything. Correct. So. And uh, again, you know, more information in the book. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm going to continue working on it and happily reading it every night, staying all up right, for an cool. extra hour every night. <laughs> 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 All right, good, so, good. So, yeah, but, uh, so I hope everybody reads it and comes to their own conclusions. I, like I said, I, you know, I don't state my opinion, but I definitely put as much information into the book as I think people, that that's available anyway, um, mm-hmm. the questions that we can't answer. There's still some questions we can't answer and that it would be great if we could answer. I don't know if we're ever going to get this case reopened in order to try to answer those questions or if it's too late, honestly, for to answer some of those questions. Right. So, but, but bottom line is, you know, the sheriff in the last election um, had a close election, you know, and, you know, basically he, the minute that the jury verdict came back in favor of the Zahaus, uh, he immediately came out with a statement basically supporting his, their department's initial suicide finding. It was as if the mm-hmm. jury trial didn't make any difference, which I think is a pretty, you know, strange message to be sending to the public. If you're in criminal justice system and you're trying to say, hey, this court verdict <laughs> didn't well, So people got upset I, about that. Let me, let me just finish. And so... I, he basically, a couple weeks later, because his opponent in the campaign said, you know, if I'm elected sheriff, I am reopening this as a criminal case, then the sheriff decided, well, okay, I'm going to do a review, but I'm not opening, I'm not reopening the criminal case. I'm going to do a review of our investigation, and they waited nine months, so way after the election, way longer than, you know, 
And they didn't re-interview anybody. They did a couple of tests. They didn't, you know, do any new testing on the DNA, even though it had been mm-hmm. many years and there's been more technological advances in DNA, um, et cetera. And they came out with the same findings. So I'm telling you, if, if that same opponent or someone else runs against him and wins, they may get a new um, criminal case opened, I mean, reopen that case, or the Zahows are still trying to get it reopened through the courts by showing that the sheriff did not do a proper investigation the first time around. So they're still working at that. Okay. It's a very active case. So. Yeah. I think the sheriff's attitude was because it was a civil, a civil case with a lower burden of proof. That's true, but that's still um, within, it was within like in minutes. <laughs> I mean, so he didn't he didn't take it very seriously. Um, and I think that's a really strange message for someone in law enforcement to send. And I think one of his political advisors basically just said, "Hey, I think you ought to come out and try to, you know, fix that." Right. <laughs> it wasn't a very politically savvy move to do so soon after right. a jury verdict. So. But there are people and, who say, hey, you I, know, the sheriff's a really good guy. He would never have done anything corrupt, you know, because the, the claims that the that the house are making are that, you know, Jonah Shacknight, because he's so wealthy, has some kind of special influence over the investigation. They gave him information. They didn't give the the house. Um, mm-hmm. they, you know, he says that's not true. The sheriff says that's not true. There's no money on the campaign donation records. So, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out here that somehow, you know, the sheriff is bribed or something is funny about this. And so there's a lot of people out there who still question the sheriff's findings. Mm-hmm. So that is a – but what – I mean, Jonas, what motive would he have? He would want answers as much as – Oh, yeah, he wrote I think to the anyone. Attorney General, and, and he said, hey, will you please reopen this case because I want people to believe that this was a credible investigation. <laughs> he wants this mm-hmm. to be closed and to move on, and yeah. you know, it's just kind of like an open wound, you know. I think law enforcement, is, Go ahead. law enforcement is still coming to grips with the transparency of the 21st century and having to admit when you don't, you know, when you make a mistake, you, you don't double down and say it wasn't necessary. You say, yeah, we yeah. should have done that, and we didn't. Right. And which now we're doing it, <laughs> which isn't – law enforcement across the country, I think, has a hard time with that concept. Oh, absolutely. That's definitely true. <laughs> so, but well, well, I, I apologize. What were you saying? <laughs> That's all I was saying. That, that was it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I know you have uh, you have something else scheduled, so I don't want to keep it too long. I start losing my voice after an hour. That's what happens. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> That's what happens. So. Well, yeah. we'll uh, it was great having you. Uh, well, thank when you. you. I appreciate you getting come, me on. When you come down from this tour... Uh, and you're ready to talk about some of your other books, Uh let me know. Reach out on Facebook, and I would love to talk to you about every one of your books because I've read (laughs) most of them, and the ones I haven't read yet, I'm going to read them now. 
All right, cool. Sounds good. So, all right, because like I said, Thanks you've got a, a great style, really great read. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, okay, cool. Well, you have your have a, a good night, and I will you too. talk to you another time. Take okay. care. Thank you so much. All right, you're welcome. Bye bye. Bye. Another just amazing freaking interview. Like, good lord. Mm-hmm. Good Lord, Caitlin, Caitlin is great, uh, you know, just listening to yeah. the stuff that she went through just to investigate, you know, and the people that mm-hmm. she encountered, uh, she talked about the sheriff, you know, very interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, this is the case, I mean, you know, mistakes were made during that investigation, there's no doubt about it, Right. Um, but I think what's happening, and a lot of law enforcement has this, uh, they can't say we made a mistake, we're going to fix it, or we're going we're gonna to do what we should have done, or it was important and we, we dropped the ball and we're going to learn from it. Of course, a lot of times when they do that, it doesn't do them any good because they still get the criticism. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, still, but in a certain... In certain cases, you can't afford to make these mistakes. Like, you know, where people, you know, you see but, these people getting put behind jail for decades and decades, and then they come out. Yeah, those people need to be criticized. But, you know... It, well, but often, though, a lot of times the people coming out of jail are because a witness recanted or DNA evidence exonerated them, and that doesn't that doesn't mean there was a mistake during the original investigation. It well, means it, something changed that exculpated the person well, who was maybe, originally convicted. Maybe it's maybe it's a better example for the audience we have here, but like uh, the gentleman who failed to uh, do the chain of custody paperwork on the OJ evidence. We still talk shit about him to this day, even though I'm not. Well, sure I don't know. No, no, no. Wait a second. I think you're. I think you're. No, I think you're conflating something. Um, there wasn't somebody who didn't do paperwork on chain of custody. Okay, I thought chain of custody was. What happened was the detectives got a blood sample at the Bundy crime scene. Right. While it was being processed and they were going to transport it to the lab. Right. And in between there and the lab, I think there was a stop to follow another lead. Okay. And then they brought it to the lab. Now, one of the, the one of the problems I have is that was used to allege that they planted OJ's blood, but they never had OJ's blood. Right. Or he, they got OJ's blood and they never went near the Bundy crime scene. Because I, I think that's another thing. It, sometimes you can go behind and second guess. And if you are vague in the details, which sometimes people are very vague in the details like 
the guy who didn't do the chain of custody paperwork. Uh-huh. When that's not what happened. That's not the context. Right, true. So, you know, I think, and sometimes like in, in, in Rodney Reed's case, the lead well, detective admitted at trial that they didn't search the apartment. They didn't have probable cause to get a warrant, and they weren't going to try and search it without a warrant. Well, um, you know, I just had a thought that occurred to me. You know, maybe that would be a good show for us to do, would be uh, common, you know, famous misconceptions about trials and uh, investigations. Maybe that would be an interesting episode. Another thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to ask you while I'm thinking about it here, how hard would it be? I know it's a territory of the U.S. How hard would it be for you to get information uh, from Puerto Rico? A case that would have occurred in Puerto Rico. Uh, hang on a second. I can pull up Lexus, and you have to give me a name. You uh, and Sean with you, the guy who was in Puerto Rico. When you want the victim, or and it was a murder. Uh, I think either one will do. Okay, give me one second. Uh, okay. Obviously, it's going to be his real name. Um, and, of course, I'm blanking on his <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I hate this right now. Okay, hold on. There we go, Bruiser. There we go. What's his real name? Uh, Frank Donald Goodish was the victim. Okay. G-O-O-D-I-S-H? Yes. Okay. I got Pennsylvania. I got Michigan. Until... Da, 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 da. I don't know... An- I want to say that uh, I want to say that the uh, that the gentleman, okay, he was charged but was acquitted due to self-defense and contingent contentious circumstances. The only reason why I want to go over this, this by the way, uh, for anybody that's a wrestling fan, this is the murder of Bruiser Brody. But this guy, I kind of want to go into this because it's a special circumstance where there's a lot of controversy surrounding. Uh, okay, what's the, the perpetrator's person? name? Jose. What's the perpetrator's name? Jose Huertas Gonzalez. Do I need to spell that? G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z. Uh, yes. I just want to use the last names. And I can send you the Wikipedias on these. Okay, let me look. I'm looking to see if Puerto Rico... But if he was acquitted, there probably wasn't an appeal. Right, right. The only reason why I want to go into this is, like I said, this is an interesting uh, this is an interesting case for me because in Puerto Rico there is there's a lot of controversy surrounding what happened. So uh, I'll just read the sentence, but. Uh, He was basically acquitted due to self-defense and contentious circumstances, particularly as key witnesses to the incident were unable to testify due to receiving their summons after the trial had concluded. 
Domestic witnesses and event, event investors corroborated a different account than foreign witnesses, and the murder weapon mysteriously vanished. If he was acquitted, there's not going to be any reported cases. There's okay. another small hitch to Puerto Rico. Uh-huh. I don't read or speak Spanish. Oh, shit, it would be in Spanish, wouldn't it? And it's all in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that. Damn it. No, I just thought it would be a cool case. Kind of like uh, there's one that uh, Brad actually just did on his uh, Crime Line podcast this past week uh, about the death of Gino Hernandez, who was a pro wrestler in the Texas area. Uh, but there was never a case in that one. It's just there's a lot of speculation uh-huh. as to how he died. So I, I okay. wanted to talk about that one with you, but I was like, there's no case. There's no real – there's nothing real that we can discuss in this. Correct, because there's not really anything that the courts – because what I do is I use the court opinion and the and the court pleadings to – um, show me what facts were established of record right. in the and trial. To be fair, for anybody that's new to this podcast, you know, we we are a we are a podcast that gets our facts directly from court transcripts. So we are heavily reliant upon transcripts. We try our best, you know, in OJ, we might throw in a jab or two at OJ, but you know, we try our best to present everything without any hearsay, I guess would be the word I'm looking for. Uh, well, as far as, you know, something that hasn't been proven. We try our best to keep that out of it. Correct. And that's, you know, with, with OJ, we had the benefit of transcripts of trial testimony, even though a summary of what was established at the trial wasn't available. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, that is basically um, something we wouldn't be able to really cover uh, because even if there were a court opinion, I would have to have it translated from Spanish. Right, exactly, exactly, and unfortunately, computers haven't been smart enough to where you can just highlight it, right-click, and hit translate, unfortunately. I feel like we're getting that close, but unfortunately, we're not there. <laughs> so, sorry about that, but, uh, yeah, I. Um, it sounds like it could be interesting, but, again, it's, you know, it's well, going to yeah, be something I mean, that's going to be I difficult. The, I didn't think about the language barrier. The first thing I thought of was, can we even get transcripts from Puerto Rico? Because even though it's a uh-huh. territory, I don't know if they work differently as far as their uh, court cases. Well, now, again, I, I don't always have transcripts. Transcripts are the are the the reproduction of the actual testimony by a court reporter. Uh-huh. Sometimes I have those, sometimes I don't. Okay. Um what I'm talking about are the court opinions which generally are the appellate courts either oh. an entire 
court of appeal or a panel of a court of appeal. Right. Uh, you know, they generally will talk about what the what the defendant was charged and convicted of, what the facts were established, what facts were established at trial, and then they apply the law and to the facts and render an opinion as to whether or not there was an error at trial or uh, whether the claims made have any merit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, but yeah, Caitlin is a great guest and hopefully I will, once she finishes her, her talking about her new book, Dead, um, Death on Ocean Boulevard, inside the Coronado Mansion case, uh, we'll be able to have her back talk about Dead Reckoning and uh, Poison Love and um, i got a few more books I want to read. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. And The Lost Girls is a really good one. So, I mean, I absolutely can't wait until uh, until we get also another ghost, or another ghost, another guest <laughs> that I absolutely adore. Y'all are going to have to forgive me. I'm all allergied up with the crud and stuff. But uh, another guest I can't <laughs> wait until we get through COVID for is, like you said, We've talked about it before, but getting the uh, horse racing people back in here. I can't wait to do that some more. Yes, Natalie Voss. We are going to be talking to Natalie Voss. Uh, Well, actually, no. We're recording this to air in May. Michael, we will have talked to Natalie Voss already by the time this airs. (laughs) Excitement. That'll be fun. I mean, I kind of miss the horse racing stuff, but, you know, like you said, when I brought it up, you know, it's kind of COVID, so nothing's really going yeah. on. Well, actually, no, I have to say, uh, there were a a few weeks, because of the nature of horses, uh-huh. you know, the tracks, If even if you're not going to have races and you're not going to have jockeys and you're not going to have uh, trainers, you still have to have grooms. And you still have to feed and and care for the horses, and they need exercise. So most of the tracks around the country, they continue to operate without spectators. Oh, wow, that's awesome. And they continue to run races without spectators. I was was, uh, going through, I think it was Instagram. I want to say it was last weekend or the weekend before. And uh, I saw somebody in the hat. So I was wondering, has the Kentucky Derby already happened this year? Like, was it just recent? Because the hats make me automatically think of the Kentucky Derby. We're recording this, and no, at the time we're recording this, it hasn't happened, but it may have happened by the time this show airs. Okay. Because the Kentucky Derby may be... The Kentucky Derby runs the first Saturday in May. I just saw somebody at a horse track with historically the hat on, so I automatically put two and two together and was like, "Oh, the Kentucky Derby." Some of the tracks do that. Like I think they do that at Saratoga, and I think they do it. 
you're going to have to send me a picture of the the hats and the race horse racing and hats. Okay, absolutely. I'll see if I can find it. <laughs> a recent one. <laughs> um, you know, different racetracks around the country may have uh, the you know the the fairgrounds here in New Orleans uh-huh. may on opening day in the spring because a lot of tracks around the country are having their spring meets are opening. Right. So you may have. Um, uh, you know, was it Oak Lawn? What tr- what racetrack was it? Oh no, no, it wasn't somebody local. It was like a celebrity or somebody that I follow on Instagram, and I just noticed in their story, as they call it, on there, that they were wearing a fancy hat and they were at a racetrack. So I was like, Oh snap! I guess they are racing. Oh, but they could have that. That could have been a picture from earlier on. Before. Yeah, that's true. That's true, because nobody was wearing masks either, so that very well could have been. Oh, well, Even that though, could have been a that could have been a pre twenty twenty horse racing. Even though I don't know <laughs> how it is uh, in Louisiana, but they just lifted our mask mandate uh, as we're recording this yesterday. Well, I we still have a mask mandate. I'm getting my vaccination. Oh, I was about to say, you can guarantee if you see me out on the streets, though, I'll still be wearing my mask. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, well, yeah, you still have to wear your mask. Although, in in New Orleans um, you guys got and in Louisiana, we still have to wear the, the masks, but if we're in a group that's all been vaccinated, we don't. <laughs> so hopefully that means while we're in our offices, now we don't have to wear it. while we're in our office um the law firm that right. as a whole right. we don't have to because i feel bad when i get up and i run to the copy room to send a fax and i i realize i forgot to put my mask back on so i stand oh in the goodness. copy room with my shirt over my over my nose and mouth and anytime anybody comes in i apologize because i so- forgot so when we uh, got this last stimulus, the $1,400 one, uh, I one of the things I got was a couch, and we got it delivered. And, man, I tell you, I used to be so quick about grabbing that mask. But because I haven't been going out as much as what I was, man, I got all the way downstairs, was talking to the guy, saw him put his mask on, and I was like, shit, I'm sorry, man. He was like, don't worry about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah. I I did the same thing the other morning. I I had to stop and get gas. Mm-hmm. And I just jumped out of the car, ran into the station to hand him my money and tell him which pump. And I realized I didn't have my mask on when I saw the guy wearing the cashier wearing his mask. And I was like, Dude, I'm sorry, man. I'm so sorry. doing right. Mhm. Yeah. But and one guy one day I was going to go into Rouse's and I forgot my mask and uh-huh. I got all the way up there and the the little cart the guy that collects the carts and cleans the carts he was like you forgot your mask ma'am you can't come in without your mask and I was like I am so sorry 
So I hate when this happens that I turn and walk back to the car. I love that you said that because, man, these videos of these people who are walking into Walmart and these poor people make a minimum wage just trying to tell them, ma'am, we require and them freaking out on them. I always feel so Yeah, sorry. and be an asshole. Getting yelled at. And be an asshole. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. There be people who won't wear a mask and then are rude and obnoxious to a clerk who's telling them the store policy or the city ordinance or whatever it is mandating people wear masks, you are an asshole. Absolutely. Just go get the freaking mask and put the damn thing on. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've had people, I don't believe in it. It's not the tooth fairy, okay? Yeah. And that's a, that, a, a whole other topic of the device, yeah, divisiveness of people on both sides of the aisle who just want to disagree for the sake of disagreement. Right. Well, I mean, science isn't uh, science isn't what it used to be as far as a uh, just a definitive answer anymore. Seems like everybody wants to question absolutely everything. So, you know. Well, yeah, science is, and science isn't always, science isn't always the answer either. You know, Um, kind of tying this back into Most of the time it's, it's pretty close, but. Right. You can't always be. You know, common sense, common sense. Exactly. Science, especially in okay. something novel, you like have that, right. You seen before. You have it's, a it's a virus that is spread through the air. So to eliminate your exposure, you wear a mask over your nose and mouth. You wash your hands. You don't touch your face. It's crazy how many people don't wash their hands either. You know, and people, the thing is, COVID has been around. It was right. called SARS. It was in Asia primarily. And do you remember back in, you know, I, I'd say probably 2005, 2006, somewhere around there, in Asia, people were wearing masks all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was because of SARS. I agree. People don't And it understand. was a very virulent respiratory infection that was passed through the air, and you could spread it by talking and breathing, and, and you could catch it by breathing. Right. And being talked to. So people wore masks and they washed their hands. If people would have just done their daggum what they were supposed to, this wouldn't have even been that bad as far as it probably wouldn't have gotten to a global pandemic level if people would have just done their damn job. Well, no, I don't think that that is correct. I think this is a more virulent strain. Right. Of SARS. I think that um, that it 
kind of caught a lot of countries and a lot of populations unawares. Uh-huh. And it made people very, very, very sick. And then a way of of slowing its progression or stopping its progression was eluded us. And it's eluded. It's continued to elude. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of I mean, you know, okay. Lord, I'm happy to see our cases under, you know, hanging around the 100 new cases a day. But Lord knows mm-hmm. that we probably, you know, I would like to see that much, much lower still. Right. And I mean, it's it, the that's the SARS that was in Asia several years ago. It it didn't really make it here. Right. And this is like, you know, for anybody read up on the uh, Spanish flu influenza epidemics in, I think it was 1912, 13, and 14, or Uh 1918. And, you know, that's that's just how it works. You get a virulent viral infection that easily spreads rapidly spreads and makes people incredibly ill, it's going to get out of hand. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so, and, you know, I don't think, I I got very angry because, you know, the the prior presidential administration got criticism for things like not canceling Mardi Gras. Well, guess what? He can't cancel Mardi Gras. He couldn't cancel Mardi Gras. And I promise you, our Democratic mayor, had he tried to do so, would have fought him tooth and freaking nail. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So the U.S. president cannot cancel an event in New Orleans, Louisiana. Period. End of conversation. Anybody who believes, and if he had tried to do it, our mayor would have fought him. He would have had to send the fucking National Guard in, and, you know, LaToya would have had her NOPD and NOFD engage the fire, you know, the the National Guard. (laughs) Right. So that we could have Mardi Gras. People just generally don't understand how much the uh, presidential authority is more suggestion-based than enforcement-based. You know what I mean? Correct. And, and Or, you know, basically they want to criticize the U.S. president for doing something he didn't have the power to do. And or for not me. doing something he never had the power to do. And trust me, I mean, I'm not here to get into political talk, but by any stretch of the imagination, there is plenty to, uh, to uh, talk about that man on then him not canceling Mardi Gras, something that he had nothing to do with. So, but, uh, you know, his his reign is over. Let it go. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I preach every Monday night on the American Idiots. Join us there. So. Please, let's just move the hell on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up since it's a, yeah, a Wednesday that, night. We're first if we get any bonus time, so we got about twenty eight left. Yeah, and and I I didn't intend for this to be a full two hours anyway because you're not feeling well. It's Wednesday night. I've missed American Housewife. I've missed the Connors. Oh, I was about to say you missed uh, Dancing with the Stars, but I guess tonight's not Dancing with the Stars, is it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't watch Dancing with the Stars anymore. Oh, because they let Tom Bergeron and Aaron Andrews go, oh. and they brought in Tyra Banks. Really? And I used to watch America's Next Top Model, but I really don't want to see America's Next Top Model on Dancing with the Stars. Hey, I, I can agree there. And especially since Tyra has never even been a contestant on that show. Right. Um, so <laughs> I didn't watch it last season. I won't watch it next season. When they bring Tom and Aaron back, I'll start watching again. And okay. that's, I just prefer Tom Bergeron. In fact, I never watched that show for any of the celebrity dancers, although I did enjoy the majority of them, I always watch that show just to see what Tom Bergeron would say. Right. And, you know, because he is a an incredibly talented comedian. He's a talented host. Um, you know, he's just, he's a great, seems like a genuinely nice person. And so, yeah. So I won't watch Dancing with the Stars until he's back. Right on. With Erin Andrews, because I liked her as a, I liked her as a co-host. So, all right, well, let's wrap this up. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan and our special guest, Caitlin Rother, who joined us to talk about Death on Ocean Boulevard inside the Coronado Mansion case. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week on Tuesday, May 12, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 10, State of Texas versus Lester Bauer. Bauer was convicted on four counts of capital murder in connection with the 1983 theft of a light aircraft resulting in a death sentence. We'll talk about the evidence against Bauer, allegedly exculpatory evidence presented to the courts in 2008, and Bauer's controversial execution in 2015. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.